Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. To search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. For most of us, our mental snapshot of 19th century battlefield medicine is captured when Union Major General Carl Schurz recorded a ghastly scene at Gettysburg. He wrote, There stood the surgeons, their sleeves rolled up to their elbows. One snatched his knife from between his teeth, wiped it rapidly once or twice across his blood-stained apron, and the cutting began. The operation accomplished, the surgeon would look around with a deep sigh, and then, next... Relying on first-hand accounts, meticulous statistics, and research, we share a side of the conflict that few who fought wanted to think about, and particularly experience. For our 70th episode, we tell the story of Civil War medicine. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. As we begin, a few first-hand accounts of medicine during the American Civil War. In 1918, Dr. W. W. Keene, a federal surgeon during the war, remembered, We operated in old blood-stained and often pus-stained coats, the veterans of a hundred fights. We used undisinfected instruments from undisinfected plush line cases, and still worse, used marine sponges which had been used in prior pus cases and had been only washed in tap water. If a sponge or an instrument fell on the floor, it was washed and squeezed in a basin of tap water and used as if it were clean. Our silk to tie blood vessels was undisinfected. The silk with which we sewed up all wounds was undisinfected. If there was any difficulty in threading the needle, we moistened it with bacteria-laden saliva and rolled it between bacteria-infected fingers. We dressed the wounds with clean but undisinfected sheets, shirts, tablecloths, or other old soft linen rescued from the family rag bag. We had no sterilized gauze dressing, no gauze sponges. We knew nothing about antiseptics and therefore Use none. Even U.S. Grant was affected by such scenes, as he recounted the night of April the 6th, 1862, after the first day of battle at Shiloh. I made my headquarters under a tree a few hundred yards back from the riverbank. My ankle was so much swollen and the bruise was so painful that I could get no rest. The drenching rain would have precluded the possibility of sleep without this additional cause. Sometime after midnight, growing restive under the storm and the continuous pain, I moved back to the log house under the bank. This had been taken as a hospital, and all night wounded men were being brought in, their wounds dressed, a leg or an arm amputated as the case might require and everything being done to save life or alleviate suffering. The sight was unendurable, and I returned to my tree in the rain. And then an unnamed Union soldier's account, after being left behind August 30, 1862, just after the Battle of Second Manassas. He wrote, There were six of us, and we six had had seven legs amputated. Our condition was horrible in the extreme. Several of us were as innocent of clothing as the hour we were born. Between our mangled bodies and the rough surface of the board floor, there was a thin rubber blanket. 
to cover our nakedness another blanket. Between us and the fierce heat of that Virginia sun, there was but the poor protection of the thin tent cloth. There were plenty of flies to pester us and irritate our wounds. Our bodies became afflicted with loathsome sores and horrible, indescribable maggots found lodgings in wounds and sores, and we were helpless. And then an account from Union Lieutenant A.H. Nickerson at a field station at Keatesville, Maryland, just after the battle on Antietam Creek. The operating surgeons were in their shirt sleeves, which were rolled up, leaving their bare arms exposed and covered with blood, giving them the appearance of a bevy of butchers in a Chicago abattoir. While sitting, awaiting the surgeon, every few minutes an attendant would bring past me to the open window an arm, a leg, or a mangled hand, which he pitched into a little trench dug under the window for the purpose. Pretty soon a young surgeon came up and, grabbing me by the shoulder, said, Shoulder smashed? A sickening feeling came over me as I replied that it certainly would be now if it were not before. Bring this man some whiskey, said he as I reeled in my seat. A glass of whiskey did not seem to affect me any more than would so much water. The pain was so intense. Then the young surgeon thrust his finger into the hole where the bullet had entered, and with his other forefinger plunged into the place of its exit. He rummaged around for broken bones, splinters, etc., until I swooned away. Fortunately, I knew no more about what transpired until I found myself with an arm intact and shoulder bandaged under the trees outside, and Joe fanning me with his old slouched hat. These scenes impacted more than soldiers. A nurse and future poet, too. Walt Whitman wrote, Future years will never know the seething hell and black infernal background, and it is best they should not. And as one physician, Dr. Timothy Childs, once penned, medicine does improve, but it improves slowly. A few statistics to remind you of those who in camp and on battlefields were potential patients. The average Civil War soldier stood five, eight, and one-quarter inches, weighed 143 and one-half pounds, was 26 years of age, and had brown hair, blue eyes. His occupation before serving? Farmer. His chances for survival while in uniform? Of those men deemed ineffective and actively engaged in battle, one of every 42.7 would be killed in battle. One of every 10.2 was captured, and one of every seven would die in prison. And particularly, statistics that relates to Civil War medicine, one of every 6.7 would be wounded, and one of every 38.1 would die of their wounds. They went off to fight what many believed would be a short war. Protracted conflict would have been merciful for this country was not prepared for such massive mobilization and four years of war. For the common soldier in Union service, the following statistics would apply. For every Union soldier killed in battle, four would die of sickness or disease. Twice the number of deaths by disease, more than any other known cause. And for black soldiers who served, they were particularly vulnerable. On the average, 2,435 sick cases were reported for every 1,000 whites, and an average of 53.4 would die. For every 1,000 blacks, there would be 3,299 reported sick cases and 143.4 deaths. A white soldier, on the average, reported sick around two and a half times a year. A black soldier, about three and one-third times a year. 
not surprisingly, African-American soldiers' death rate was three times that of a white soldier. On average, each Confederate soldier was wounded or ill six times during the war. He was five times more likely to be down because of sickness rather than injury. For every Southerner killed, three died from disease. And early in the war, when they first encamped, there was big trouble. First to hit camps with epidemic proportion was measles. Around Richmond in the summer of 1861, one of every seven contracted what we now consider a childhood disease. The virus took three to four weeks to run its course. The disease so rampant that Confederate policy changed because of the number who came down with the measles. Recruits were held until the men were, as authorities noted, put through the measles. Today's childhood malady may have killed 100,000 on both sides during the war. Other childhood diseases hit as well. Chickenpox, mumps, whooping cough. Malarial fevers hit one of every seven in any Confederate army east of the Mississippi during 1861-62, and that's of those cases actually reported. There were some one million cases of malaria reported during the war. We do know that smallpox swept through the Confederate army after the Battle of Antietam. And to help combat that surge, surgeons who were without cowpox were detailed to vaccinate healthy children who pledged donation of their resulting scabs. The scare was so great that some southern soldiers took scabs from afflicted comrades by means of pocket knives. We know there were three serious outbreaks of yellow fever within Union camps during the conflict. The worst was in New Bern, North Carolina in the fall of 1864. 763 cases and 303 deaths. The North Carolina port, Wilmington, had a severe yellow fever epidemic when the ship Kate brought the disease in from Nassau in early August of 1862. It finally ran its course in December, but of some 1,500 cases, 654 Wilmingtonians died. Yet of all the medical maladies, the most prevalent problem was diarrhea and dysentery. Not to be confused with the Union Army of the Potomac, an early war Confederate Army of the Potomac in the first nine months had an average mean strength just under 50,000, and there were 36,572 cases from dysentery and diarrhea alone. And for those in blue, like their southern counterparts, they too were ravaged by disease when they first came together. After the first couple of war years when soldiers were most susceptible, July and August proved to be peak times for sickness. Keep in mind that many from both sides were particularly vulnerable because they were previously farmers and isolated. Volunteers from urban areas were still susceptible, but certainly not like their rural comrades. To pick up on an earlier point, at the beginning of the war, measles was the first to cause mass suffering. If left untreated, measles often led to pneumonia. Malaria, or the shakes, was also bad. One Union soldier reported, We are more afraid of ague here than the enemy. And it was extremely prevalent. One of every four reported malarial fevers, and the same ratio suffered from intestinal maladies. As one put it, bowels are of more consequence than brains. Here's a frequent complaint or report. My bowels moved 18 times in three hours. In the first year of the war, here are numbers as reported from the Union Army of the Potomac alone. 640 of every 1,000 had diarrhea or had dysentery. The next year, 995 per 1,000. Why the unbelievable rates of sickness? Well, camps became cities. Both wanted to fight the enemy, but the deadliest foe was invisible. 
And as we mentioned earlier, so many country boys simply did not have natural or provided immunization. One might ask, why were so many sick regardless of previous locale and occupation? Several reasons, and they contributed singly and also in conjunction with each other. First, one of the reasons, the rural background of so many. One North Carolinian wrote about, as he put it, the unsophisticates of the Alabama and Georgia soldiers. He wrote, they are like little children, never away from home before, can't take care of themselves and need someone to force them to wash themselves and put on clean clothing. And when they start out to march, they load themselves with more baggage than two men could carry. These are the men which, for the most part, compose our sick and fill up our hospitals. Another reason, the indiscriminate policy of recruiting. Not until fall of 1862 did the Confederacy have a program of physical exams for its men. Yet, even then, men were accepted with partial deafness, reducible hernia, muscular rheumatism, blindness in one eye, and loss of a couple of fingers. By late 1862, some 200,000 Union recruits who were first judged okay were discharged. And when men were really needed later in the war, men over the age of 40 were extremely susceptible. Another reason why the number? Exposure to rain and cold. Frequent rains for Confederate General Joseph Johnston's army in March and April 1862 meant men who had not been provided with raincoats slept constantly on wet and damp ground. And then in conjunction with exposure to rain and cold, selection of campsites. Far too many selected low-lying ground and or around sites with impure water. For example, the Confederate Army at Corinth during April and May 1862 camped where the water was, as one soldier recorded, smelled so offensively that the men had to hold their noses while drinking it. And not surprisingly, as many died from disease during that time as fell at the earlier Battle of Shiloh. Another factor, the filth from lack of personal hygiene and from camps. Officers were ordered to look after the health of their men, but that was frequently overlooked. U.S. Sanitary Commission General Secretary Frederick Law Olmsted wrote, No disease is so destructive to an army as laxity of discipline. The U.S. regular army did require that hands and face be washed daily, feet bi-weekly, and complete bath once or twice weekly, but that was rarely followed. For the Confederacy, that would have been a tough order to follow due to short supplies and huge needs. And Confederate scarcities included one item, and its absence prompted Robert E. Lee to write on January the 19th, 1865. There is great suffering in the army for want of soap. And over and beyond soap, bacteria and disease lay in wait for many in the camps themselves. They were laced with latrines and sinks and various stages of military compliance. There was the addition of garbage, animal feces, etc. And within that toxic miasma, pest and vermin thrived. Flies were a particular nuisance as documented by one Louisianan. When we open our eyes in the morning, we find the canvas roofs and walls of our tents black with them. It needs no morning reveille than to rouse the soldier from his slumbers. The tickling sensations about the ears, eyes, mouth, nose, etc., caused by the microscopic feet and inquisitive suckers of an army numerous as the sands of the seashore will awaken a regiment of men from innocent sleep to wide-awake profanity more promptly than the near beat of the alarming drum. Another wrote, I get vexed at them and commence killing them, but as I believe 40 of them comes to everyone's funeral, 
I have given it up as a bad job. Adding to the common soldier's misery, mosquitoes. They were horrible. Many call them gallinippers. One soldier remarked that they were of a preponderous size, almost able to shoulder a musket. Or, whereas the Tennessee pests could muster only squads, those of Mississippi moved in regiments. And of course, a few weeks after the attack of mosquitoes, men experienced chills and fever, the symptoms of malaria. And mosquitoes were often joined by buffalo gnats, blowflies, and chiggers. Fleas were especially bad as well. A great alarm was heard in the upper part of the regiment. Hastening to the spot, I inquired what was the matter. A man was asleep in his tent, and a couple of fleas had taken hold on him and carried him halfway to the river, intending to drown him while asleep, for he had sworn vengeance against them. Yet no one was safe from, as they were called, graybacks, rebels, zouaves, tigers, brags, bodyguard, body lice. So prevalent, they became the unlikely source for poetry and joke. Like, now I lay me down to sleep, while graybacks o'er my body creep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord their jaws to break. So prevalent, whole phrases were created. If you tried to kill them, it was fighting under the black flag. If you gave up and threw your shirt away, it was giving the vermin a parole. And if you tried to salvage a ravaged shirt by turning it inside out, that was executing a flank movement. Yet another factor for so much disease was terrible diet, or as some put it, death by frying pan. Rations for federal soldiers included beef, flour, dry beans, green coffee, sugar, salt, and small amounts of pepper, yeast powder, soap, candles, and vinegar. For Confederates, bacon, cornmeal, or flour, rice. For both, three-by-three-inch square, half-an-inch-thick cracker, hardtack, called worm castles, sheet-iron crackers, and teeth dullers, and almost invariably, hardtack and whatever you or your messmates possessed, all of it was tossed into a frying pan and a sea of grease. Rancid meat was another problem, and in an effort to resolve that crisis, rationed meat was pickled with enough salt to last two years, hence the name salt horse. Often there were too few fresh vegetables or fruits, and in much of the common soldiers' stored food, worms and maggots. On the two, one federal soldier noted, Yesterday morning was the first time we had to carry our meat, for the maggots always carried it till then. We had to have extra guard to keep them from packing it clear off. In the Federal Army's first year, there were 4,000 sick cases reported for every 1,000 men due to poor food preparation alone. In fact, it became such a problem that Congress, in 1863, authorized the hiring of cooks to supervise food preparation, in part because the watchdog U.S. Sanitary Commission had observed that after three months of unsupervised cooking, 40% of regimental strength suffered from intestinal problems. Now, when one came down with whatever, what was the preparation and background of medical personnel? Though there were some 55,000 doctors at that time, their medical education was quite basic and quite general and most uneven. Many learned by observation. Quite often, an apprenticeship of two, five years or matriculation into a med school. One could gain admittance provided you could meet the minimum age and, of course, pay tuition. Usually, after two years of instruction, off you went. Needless to say, doctors had a wide range of education and experience. And since states were sending volunteer manpower, 
Appointed regimental surgeons were often at the whims of colonels or governors for political favor. The AMA was created in 1847, but state license standardization did not become reality until 1912. Only Massachusetts, Ohio, and Vermont screened for trained physicians, and their world and practice were in a state of transition. Yes, there had been advances in the use of chlorine and ether beginning in 1846. And an Austrian stumbled on the connection between cleanliness and washing hands to reduce a fever that ravaged many young children and mothers. However, when he made note of this, he was dismissed for challenging the world of so-called direct and indirect inflammation. During the Crimean War, Florence Nightingale had made gains. She led 38 British nurses to the scene of the conflict. There she scrubbed everything and brought down the mortality rate in hospitals from 42% to 2%. Yet an officer asked her not to spoil the brutes. As to antitoxins and antibiotics, there was sheer ignorance. There was no science of bacteriology. Unknown was the relationship between impure water and insects. Doctors' pre-war medical treatment focused on bowels, kidneys, blood. U.S. Surgeon Generals at the beginning of the war were Drs. Thomas Lawson and Clement A. Finley, and they were clearly old school. Under them, the United States Medical Department thought medical books an extravagance. With the country engaged in civil war, the United States had 98 medical officers. The Confederacy, 24. That was at the beginning. To illustrate how unprepared both were, the United States agency owned 20 thermometers and maybe a half dozen stethoscopes. However, with the help of the United States Sanitary Association and their president, Henry W. Bellows, progress was made with the appointment of William A. Hammond, who was named Surgeon General on April 25, 1862. Their mission? Prevention rather than cure. Hammond was in his middle 30s. He was an imposing 6 feet 2 inches and weighed in at some 240 pounds. Unfortunately, he could be tactless, and in some cases, to get change, perhaps he needed to be. He had served in Indian campaigns before the war and documented cases. In Europe, he studied military hospitals. In 1859, he was appointed professor of anatomy and physiology at Maryland. His work during the war was responsible for better record-keeping for the sick and wounded, the creation of an army medical school the placement of ambulances and medical supplies, and hospital construction under the Surgeon General's control. He designed and had built permanent hospitals in Washington City, raised the rank and pay of surgeons, and helped with the prompt removal of the wounded from the battlefield. He also sent specimens to the Army Medical Museum, which he created in 1862. His medical and surgical history of the War of the Rebellion would be the first American medical work recognized in Europe. He also appointed a new Army of the Potomac medical director. He did so in June of 1862, 38-year-old Jonathan Letterman. Among his many reforms, he set up, organized, and trained ambulance corps. It worked well as evidenced at Antietam, where within 24 hours after the battle, all of the Union wounded were off the field. He even had it down to which foot stretcher-bearers should start off with. The front led with the left, those behind the right, to minimize jarring. Hammond wanted to incorporate the system for the entire army, but in August of 1862, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck rejected the plan because he believed the use of non-combatants would encourage stampede and panic. Mercifully, it was finally implemented in March 1864, and its basic structure remained through World War II. 
The Confederate Surgeon General was Dr. Samuel Preston Moore, who was quite capable. He had resigned from the United States Medical Department at the beginning of the war. His design of wards for general hospitals stays with us even today. And aware that the Confederacy was strapped for supplies and what they had was so prior-laden, he pushed Dr. Francis P. Porcher to publish Resources of Southern Fields and Forests in 1863. That work labeled up to 400 natural substances that could be used for remedies and treatment. Now, what would happen if you were a common soldier and went down with a wound? Let's take one through a battlefield experience and our time frame will be post-September 1862. Before, if one was wounded, recovery was haphazard at best. The two bull runs or Manassas, Shiloh and the Seven Days Campaign were wake-up calls. Something had to be done. Once a battle seemed imminent, contract physicians who might have been hired for the emergency prepared for the wounded to come in. These folks were of diverse quality and, quite honestly, helped create the dread and hate directed toward doctors and surgeons, sawbones, they called them. Medical directors on site directed regimental surgeons to select sites for first aid stations and field hospitals, which might include barns, churches, tents, houses, etc., When battle came, if one was wounded and it was early in the war, several men fell out to take their comrade back. Later, reforms took care of that, for too many used a wounded comrade as an excuse to leave the front line. Perhaps musicians, drummer boys, and or identified problem soldiers might serve as stretcher bearers. They might help or guide wounded soldiers toward an area marked with a red flag, the first aid station, which was just far enough back to be out of range of small arms fire. Now, wounded and with the adrenaline of fight gone, or as historian Bell Irvin Wiley put it, if glory be measured by suffering, then these were the heroes, those who, sorely wounded or desperately ill, lived to experience the unspeakable agony of hospitalization. A surgeon or assistant surgeon was there to staunch serious bleeding, splint fractures, give medication like opium, laudanum, or morphine, or the panacea for many ills, a shot of whiskey. 80 to 94% of all casualties were wounded by a projectile, a bullet. Over 70% of all projectile wounds were found in arms, thighs, legs, hands, or feet. It's possible that the casualty might be told to report to the field hospital, which was a mile or two away and usually close to a water supply. Upon arrival, the wounded would probably be greeted by horrendous and pitiful moans, cries, and screams. There could well be a pile of amputated limbs. A fired soft lead bullet at low velocity, well, if it hit home and if it hit bone, both bullet and bone splintered. That meant amputation was required, and within 24 hours. If after 48 hours, one was in big trouble. The procedure, amputation, took 15 minutes. Three of every four surgical procedures in the American Civil War was an amputation. Chances for survival depended on where the amputation took place. The amputation of a finger or hand had only a 2.6% mortality rate. An ankle, 7%. Upper arm, 25%. Shoulder, 29%. Leg, 34%. Knee, 40%. Upper thigh, 65%. And hip, 80 to 90% mortality rate. Amputation of arms had a good chance for survival. In fact, unbelievably, in a tribute to the human spirit, Three of every four amputees survived the procedure and recovered. 
Now, back to one who arrived at a field station. Upon arrival, an assistant surgeon took a quick look at the wound and placed the soldier into one of three categories. Mortally wounded, slight and low priority, and those requiring surgery, which meant more immediate attention. For the record, if hit in a shoulder joint, 33% mortality rate. Skull, 61% if they trefined. Chest entrance wound, but no exit, 64%. And hit in the stomach, 87% mortality rate. If the wound was determined mortal, one would often, two in enough instances throughout to have a name for it, would be placed under a dying tree. For those needing surgery, there would be an exploration of the entrance and or exit wound. A quick and oft-used method was the finger probe. Requiring surgery, one would be taken to or inside a structure where the scene could be one of bedlam, sheer terror, screams, prayers, a nightmarish scene from Dante's Inferno. If the patient was fortunate, a general anesthetic, probably a liberal dose of chloroform, perhaps mixed with a little ether. Then the surgeon would decide which one of the three cuts would be performed, circular for arms, single flap for below knee, or double flap. If an artery bled, it had to be tied off or cauterized. If tied off, a ligature with either catgut or silk or linen. Those sutures would be left dangling from the wound. After each day following the procedure, a surgeon would gently tug on the dangling thread. Hopefully, it would rot and pull away, pull away freely, allowing the vessel to remain clotted. If not, infection or blood poisoning was extremely possible. Or there was the possibility that a careless tug might cause secondary hemorrhaging. 97% of those with blood poisoning died. Bone infection or a black spot on a wound or incision was dreaded, for it meant gangrene. Also, right after the procedure, a wet wrapping or lint bandage was applied to cover the wound or stump. In a short while, the amputee would be awakened from the anesthesia, and the medical staff would begin to monitor the wound. Laudable pus was expected even applauded. The big issue during and after the procedure, surgeons knew that cleanliness increased chances for survival, but they had no knowledge of sterilization. Once the patient was ruled stable, then came transportation to a general hospital to recover and recuperate. Usually that occurred by means of a four-wheeled ambulance. Hopefully that facility was near a depot or navigable river. If there were miles to go, sheer horror. John D. Imboden conducted the 17-mile-long ambulance train from Gettysburg. And here are his reminiscences of transporting the wounded. For four hours, I hurried forward on my way to the front of the wagon train. And in all that time, I was never out of hearing of the groans and cries of the wounded and dying. Scarcely one in a hundred had received adequate surgical aid. Many had been without food for 36 hours. Their torn and bloody clothing, matted and hardened, was rasping the tender, inflamed, and still oozing wounds. Very few of the wagons had even a layer of straw in them, and all were without springs. The road, rough and rocky. From nearly every wagon came such cries and shrieks as these. Oh God, why can't I die? My God, will no one have mercy and kill me? Stop, oh, for God's sake, stop just for one minute. Take me out and leave me to die on the roadside. No need could be given to any of their appeals. On, on, we had to move on. During this one night, I realized more of the horrors of war than I had in all the two preceding years. In the north, hospital trains were marked with yellow flags or three red lanterns under the locomotive's light at night. Another mode of transportation for the wounded might be on a hospital boat. 
And if one was incredibly fortunate, he eventually would recover and recuperate at a place like Chimborazo Hospital in Richmond, one of 154 in the South and 49 in Richmond alone. 21 hospitals were found in North Carolina. However, Chimborazo, on the eastern end of Richmond, was special. It had 30 separate wards, 151-story buildings, and all sat on 125 acres. The complex had an 8,000-patient capacity. To put that in perspective, UNC Hospital in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is licensed to have 870 to 875 beds. Chimborazo's bakery could turn out 10,000 loaves of bread a day. It also had a 400-keg brewery, five ice houses, soap factory, cultivated fields, and a large herd of cattle and livestock. The North had 204 hospitals, 25 in the nation's capital with beds for 21,000. There, there were open rooms with plenty of ventilation and much more and better care. Indeed, there were some private hospitals, and one of them was run by a woman in Richmond. Sally Tompkins ran that facility, the Robertson Hospital, and she ran it in the Confederate capital using her own savings. With a staff of six, she and its staff ran things so efficiently that of the 1,333 patients under their care, less than 1% died. She was rewarded with the rank of captain, the only commission given to any female during the war. The United States Congress okayed female nurses in August 1861, the Confederate Congress in September 1862. Superintendent of female nurses in the North was five-foot-tall Dorothea Dix, who was on a mission. As superintendent, the 59-year-old Dix worked without pay. It is estimated that some 20,000 women in the North alone served as nurses or offered their services in health-related organizations, like the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which was organized around local chapters. Most worked like Dix without pay. It is estimated they distributed $15 million of donated supplies during the war. Sanitary fairs were outgrowths of these groups. The first was in Chicago, 1863. To raise money, Lincoln sent the original draft of his Emancipation Proclamation for auction, and it sold for $3,000. It is estimated these fairs raised $4.3 million for the Northern War effort. To be accepted as a nurse under Dorothea Dix's supervision, one had to be over 30, plain, Simple dress and no jewelry. Adamant about plainness, one who wanted to volunteer and was turned down called Dix a self-sealing can of horror tied up in red tape. Dix, among all her attributes, did suffer from the fact she did not delegate well, but she helped in placing over 3,200 nurses in Union hospitals. Of course, one of those angels of medical mercy was Clara Barton the 39-year-old Massachusetts schoolteacher who refused to take no when she knew her duty was to help those who could no longer help themselves. She wrote, This conflict is one thing I've been waiting for. I'm well and strong and young enough to go to the front. If I can't be a soldier, I'll help the soldier. Antietam was her first on-site battle experience. Later, she formed bureaus to locate the missing after the war. In late June of 1865, she embarked on a new crusade, and it came from an odd quarter. And the story demands to be told. From a hotel in Washington City came a letter from a Dorrance Atwater, a lad of 20 years who was slender, had blue eyes, light brown hair, beardless, and wore a sad smile. He had a handmade copy of the death register from Camp Sumter down in Andersonville, Georgia. It included 12,658 names. He had been captured at Boonesboro, Maryland, after Gettysburg, and was sent to Belle Isle in Richmond, then Andersonville. 
He kept a record of Union prisoners there for Confederate surgeons, but updated his own when they were not around. He had names, units, disease records, cause and date of death, and grave number. When late in the war he was transferred from Andersonville to Columbia, South Carolina, he smuggled out his list, which he had hidden in his belongings. With Atwater and his list, Clara Barton wanted to go to Andersonville after the war to help. She went to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who approved the trip. The two wanted to identify the thousands who had died there. Assistant Quartermaster in charge of military burials, Captain James M. Moore, was to lead the expedition, and he didn't want Barton or Atwater to go. In fact, he was heard on the deck of the transporting ship, God damn it to hell, some people don't deserve to go anywhere, and what in the hell does she want to go for anyway? The travel was tough, but after numerous logistical obstacles, they arrived about 12.30 p.m. on a blistering hot July 25, 1865, and what they found was 26 and a half acres of hell. This pilgrimage would haunt Barton for the rest of her life. The Union dead were in mass graves of some 100 to 150 bodies to a trench. With Atwater's list, headboards were fashioned to make record of all who died. More refused to let either Barton or Atwater on the grounds while they worked. After 6,000 headboards had been made, and with Moore's men taking a day off, Barton and Atwater's inspection found numerous mistakes, and they made Moore correct them. On August the 16th, the last tablet was completed. 12,461 identified men could now rest in peace. Only 451 would bear the sad epitaph, unknown. On the morning of August the 17th, Moore showed unusual graciousness by allowing Barton to join a common soldier, and the two raised the United States flag. When it unfurled, all sang the star-spangled banner, and Barton buried her face in her hands and cried. On the way back, Moore snubbed both. Maybe it was an omen. Back in Washington City, she learned her patent office job was gone. Atwater was ordered to turn over his list to the War Department. He refused. Government officials charged him with larceny and threw him in prison the same prison that held Henry Wirtz, the Confederate commandant of Andersonville. The two seemed star-crossed. Harper's Weekly reported the Andersonville mission and mentioned more five times. Clara Barton was mentioned once. Dorrance Atwater, not at all. On the day of Moore's official report, September the 20th, she read in the New York Herald that Atwater had been convicted of theft, sentenced to 18 months of hard labor in Auburn State Prison, fined $300, and dishonorably discharged. His Civil War journey took him from the battlefield to a POW camp at Belle Isle, to another at Andersonville, and now to a state penitentiary, Auburn State. Barden was out $7,533 of her own money and 3,500 letters from loved ones begging to be answered. To recoup her losses, she thought she would write a book, like Louisa May Alcott's Hospital Sketches, but to publish it would cost $10,000. After all she had done, she was out of work, out of money, and possibilities. She went home to visit her brother, David, and learned that only $228 remained of her inheritance. On December the 2nd, 1865, she was made aware that President Andrew Johnson had pardoned all prisoners convicted of court-martial crimes less than murder. So Atwater was released after serving two months of his sentence, but his discharge still read, Dishonorable. And still, she, too, struggled. She was rejected for every job in Washington City she applied. Christmas came, 1865. She was 44, without work, and without anything to look forward to. 
Then, on February the 14th, 1866, Horace Greeley's New York Tribune published Atwater's Andersonville's Death Register as a 74-page pamphlet entitled A List of the Union Soldiers Buried at Andersonville, and it sold for 25 cents. It was arranged alphabetically by state with grave number by each name. It included a note that originated from Atwater and Barton's report, and it created a sensation. Several papers learned of more and the government's high-handedness. Along with many, the New York citizen ran the headline, Greatest Outrage of the War. Justice finally was being served. Of her experiences, Clara Barton testified before the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, the only woman to do such. Congress, to reward her, voted her $15,000. That sum allowed her to open a missing men bureau, which she ran until 1868. The next year, 1869, found her helping the wounded in the Franco-Prussian War. Three years earlier, she did indeed hit the lecture circuit. Work and incident of army life, she entitled her message, and she commanded the same fee that Ralph Waldo Emerson received. 75 to $100. At each address, she asked those in the audience to look out for union widows and orphans, and during her talks praised other women and their efforts. In 1898, another war, the Spanish-American. And at the age of 77, Clara Barton was in Cuba helping the wounded of both North and South, all Americans wounded while fighting under one flag. Another angel of mercy was the 44-year-old widow from Ohio, Mary Ann Bickerdyke, who was first seen searching for wounded on the battlefield at Fort Donaldson in February of 1862. Her story that day made most of the newspapers. She was a force at Cairo, Illinois, a Union base, the so-nicknamed Cyclone at Cairo, and she ordered there a guardsman to nurse duty. When challenged on what authority she did this, she thundered, By the authority of the Lord God Almighty, have you anything that outranks that? She was at Donaldson, Shiloh, Vicksburg, Rizaka, Kingston, Atlanta, Chattanooga, and Lookout Mountain. In all, at 19 different battles. Amazingly, she refused to write any memoirs. After the war, she reluctantly accepted a $25 a month pension. During the conflict, she could flat take over a hospital. Once she drove one male surgeon to complain to Major General William T. Sherman, who simply responded, she ranks me. And even U.S. Grant stated, by God, man, Mother Bickerdyke outranks everyone, even Lincoln. Must have. For on May the 24th, 1865, she was the only female to march in Sherman's Grand Review in Washington. Sadly, an honor Clara Barton did not have. She watched from the streets as Bickerdyke marched along with her boys. Now, not all females were nurses. Mary Edwards Walker was a doctor. All of five feet tall, she dressed in male clothing because her want-to-be New York father insisted that tight-fitting clothes were unhealthy. That's why in public she always wore trousers. In fact, that's what she wore when she got married. In 1855, she was the second graduate from Syracuse Medical College and, not surprisingly, one of the very few, if not the first, women then with a medical degree. She made 12 visits to the Surgeon General, hoping to serve as a doctor with the United States Army, and she was refused 12 times. She went anyway, though with a medical degree, as an unpaid volunteer nurse. Like Barton, she served under fire at Fredericksburg, Gettysburg. At Chickamauga, Major General George H. Thomas appointed her a contract surgeon at $80 a month. She was the first appointed female to a medical staff when she became the assistant surgeon of the 52nd Ohio Regiment. Captured in 1864 and held for four months in Castle Thunder, she was finally exchanged and worked at an orphanage in Nashville. 
After the war, Congress awarded her $423.26 in back pay, but still refused to commission her as a major, which was the appropriate rank for a surgeon or assistant surgeon. In lieu of that, the federal government honored her by awarding her the Medal of Honor in 1866. However, a reviewing board in 1916-17 revoked some 900 awards for lack of documentation, and hers was one. She refused to give it back. You can have it over my dead body. Instead, she went on the lecture circuit and made $150 a week. She died in 1919 after taking a spill on the steps of the United States Capitol. She was 86. Her Medal of Honor was finally restored to her. Restored in 1977. As to those engaged in medicine during the American Civil War, every doctor practiced with several pieces of the puzzle still missing. They knew of rods and round dots under microscopes, but they treated symptoms, not causes. They did not know that typhoid was caused by the salmonella bacteria found in impure water or by flies carrying feces to food. Lice carried rickettsia and thus typhus. Scabies caused the army itch. Tetanus from animal droppings and bacteria found its way into open sores, wounds, and breaks in skin. Yet, there were strides during that time. The correlation between cleanliness and recovery and well-prepared food, which cut down medical problems. In one specific instance, Confederate doctors at Chattanooga discovered that maggots ate dead tissue and thus helped to clean wounds. Confederate surgeons also found that horsehair, when boiled, softened, made for great sutures, which did not create or fester infection. Doctors Hammond and Letterman created systematic methods for retrieval of the wounded, which served as a model through World War II. Yet, to return to Dr. Child's comment that we quoted during this episode's opening, Medicine does improve, but it improves slowly. That was never more evident by this sad chronology. In 1865, too late for the war, Scotland's Joseph Leister proved that using an antiseptic carbolic acid spray in operating rooms prevented pus-ridden complications. And in 1866, Louis Pasteur, found microbes were the cause of turning fermenting wine into vinegar. And to deal with, to kill those offending microbes, heat and pasteurization. In 48 months of war, there were about 10 million cases of illness and injury. Surgeons faced wounds and numbers that were unprecedented. Later, they would come to deeply appreciate the age-old adage, an army must know its enemy. Sadly, during the American Civil War, the enemy, bacteria, went unseen. Therefore, for the surgeons and their patients of America's greatest and most tragic conflict, although there were gains in the medical field, the invisible enemy claimed far too many victories. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin referred to Abraham Lincoln's cabinet as a team of rivals that most certainly applied to the 16th president's warlord. At 5'8", he, sporting a full bushy beard, was stocky, sphinx-like. Personally honest, he was more times than not tough, vindictive, given to histrionics and tyrannical when he needed to be, and again, when required, warm-hearted, unselfish, and patriotic. Charged with conducting the land-based operations of Union armies in the field, he was fully prepared to make tough decisions and did so with little regard for those affected by those decisions. His mission was to win the war 
and he relentlessly pursued that goal despite the fact that most thought of him as simply the unloved Secretary of War. Next up, a biography of Mr. Lincoln's Ares, his Mars, when next we gather the story of Edwin McMaster Stanton. It's always one of our favorite portions of each episode when we welcome a new patron. From the cockpit of the war's greatest theater in the American Civil War, from Central Virginia, we welcome Ben Johnston. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you, and thank you so very, very much for your support of what we're trying to do here at Threads from the National Tapestry. Welcome. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.